Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Hey folks, today on the podcast, we have John Guzet. John is the director of legal studies at the John Locke Foundation. Before joining John Locke, uh, John practiced law in Durham, North Carolina for over 20 years. He got his JD with honors from Duke Law School and got an AB in history from Harvard College in 1972. In between, he studied architecture and managed numerous large architectural and engineering projects across the US and UK. John, how are you doing today? I'm great. Nice to be here. Definitely. It's great to have you on. So, John, I wanted to get started. And can you walk me through, you know, what is Popper's theory of knowledge? Um, you know, why is it useful? Why is it interesting? And, and how did you find Karl Popper? And why is he important? I know those are really broad questions, but uh, I think we can work our way back there. Well, if, if, if we're not in too much of a hurry, I'll just explain how I first came across his ideas and how they fitted into some sort of intellectual problems I was working on at the time. Uh, and then maybe we could move on and see what other implications there might be. But I first came across Popper's work when I was an architecture student back in the 70s. That was a period when uh, architects all over the world were still celebrating the fact that they had thrown away several thousand years of accumulated architectural knowledge. Um, in place of all that knowledge, they thought every architect should sit, sit down on a drawing board and design each building from scratch simply uh, on the basis of what he was told was needed in the way of accommodation. And the idea was that the design of the building would somehow come out of that through some kind of rational process. I always thought that was nonsense. And I, I, uh, I, it took me a while to figure out exactly why and what the alternative might be, but I struggled with it for several years in, in school until I, by good fortune, read an article, not by Popper, but about him, um, by uh, a famous um, uh, biologist named Peter Medawar. And then that impressed me so much, I started reading Popper's books and uh, uh, suddenly I thought, yes, this is what I'm looking for. Popper's got an evolutionary theory of knowledge. Um, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are familiar with what's, what's called the problem of induction, but really going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, the standard theory of knowledge is First of all, what is knowledge? Knowledge is justified true belief. The important word there is belief. Well, they're all important, but belief is an important part because that shows that what they've always been thinking about is knowledge in psychologistic terms. It's, it's a state of mind. Um, the problem with that is there's no way to justify any belief and there's no way to find out whether any particular belief is true or not. And this is something Popper explains in great detail. He calls it fallibilism. And I won't go into the depths of it here, but the bottom line is you can never prove anything, any factual statement about the world, because in the first place, the, the ideas or thoughts you would use as premises, you can't verify them. And even if you could, no number of instantial or premises having to do with specific events and experiences could, you can't, from those you can never deduce a generalization of the kind that scientists are always after. So that's the problem of induction and Popper solved it. 
what he pointed out is we just don't need induction. The point, the way science proceeds, and in fact, the way all of human knowledge grows is through a process of trial and error. We have some kind of a problem. It might be the need for an explanation of some physical phenomenon. That's what scientists are often after. It might be a different kind of practical problem. An architect wants to know that if he's going to use a column to hold up a beam, that column has to be strong enough to take the load. Whatever the problem is, we can't get those answers by working through from first principles the way we tried to do when I was an architect. Instead, we have to try out different rules and see how well they work. Or in the case of science, try out different theories and see how they work. We test them. So there's this continuous circular process of generating, uh, uh, you start with a problem, you generate a potential solution, solution, you criticize and test it to see how well it works. And in the course of that criticism and testing, you usually end up with a new problem, which takes you on forward into the next um, cycle of the process. And in this way, knowledge grows and improves over time. Architects had been doing that from time immemorial. But as I say, back in the 1920s, a bunch of uh, people who consider themselves rationalists thought we can, we can do away with all this and just use reason to solve every architectural problem from scratch. That couldn't work and it never did. I mean, modern architecture was a disaster in almost every way. Uh, and I go into this in some detail, some things I've written about it. I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of early modern buildings, but you know, they all had flat roofs, right. which leaked every time. They don't work very um, well. They, were, they had exposed concrete, which corroded and looked horrible. They had lots of glass, which caused overheating and cold drafts and so on and so forth. Architecture had a terrible name by the 1970s when I was started, but, <laughs> but the practitioners didn't know it yet. And I'm not sure they know it even now. And they still probably haven't come around to this trial and error growth of knowledge approach that I discovered from reading Karl Popper. I eventually got fed up with the whole thing and, and uh, gave up architecture and, and went back to school and I studied law. And I was a little shocked to discover that really uh, lawyers or more specifically lawmakers, the people who make the laws do the same thing. They have the same kind of idea that you can design these things from scratch using um, simply your the knowledge gained from experience and your, and, your, and your rational intellect and your creative imagination, perhaps. That can't work. Um, and as I often say, it was bad enough that the architects did this once, but the lawmakers have done this over and over again. And every time, I mean, they did, you know, we, this goes back at least as far as, as the French Revolution and Robespierre, and they're still doing it. We just, we just seen uh, Venezuela implode over the course of a couple of decades because they tried to do the same thing. It's happened time and time again, and every time it's a disaster, just like it was in architecture. You right. think they've learned their lessons, but they don't. So I think the uh, important implication of Popper's theory of knowledge um, for law and for political matters generally, which is what I'm involved in now, is that in the same way that scientists have to learn from experience by formulating hypotheses and testing them in the real world, that's, that's, that, that's what has to happen in architecture, that's what ha has to happen in law, that's what happen, has to happen in the political realm as well. Does that make sense or did I go through that too fast? It, it does make a lot of sense. And it is, this might be, I, I want to get some feedback and see if I'm thinking about this in the right way. So there's a book called Secrets of Our Success by Joe Henrich, and he's an anthropologist at Harvard and got reviewed on Slate Star Codex. It's quite interesting. But the, the theory, theory in the book is that um, humans, you know, we have this cultural knowledge we build together. 
And oftentimes uh, we can have taboos. Let's say you have a taboo about, you know, you need to prepare potatoes this way, you know, the special breed of potatoes in this way or else something very bad will happen to the community. And, and, you know, it's this very complicated process. And in reality, preparing the potatoes in this way um, actually rids the potatoes of toxins. You know, there's a, it's, there's a certain breed of a plant in uh, Central America where this is the case. Um, and so in some ways, trying to just like, okay, we're going to throw that process away because, you know, it, nothing bad's going to happen to the community if we just cook the potatoes faster and, and don't follow this arduous process. We, um, we endanger the community in trying to, uh, th there can be important things passed down, even if it doesn't look like uh, that knowledge is important. Does that make sense? Yeah, that sounds very much like the, uh, the conclusion I drew from thinking about Popper's theory of knowledge. Um, it also sounds a lot like a, a, a less uh, rigorous philosopher, but an interesting man. You know, uh, Chesterton's fence, you've, you're familiar with that? Yes. And that's the same idea, I think. We don't know necessarily why everything that's a part of our culture is there or what good it might be doing us. And, but, but we shouldn't just throw things away willy-nilly. It doesn't mean that things can't right. change. They, they should change. We should always, everything about our culture should be subject to testing and criticism. But we don't just throw things away and think we can start from scratch and come up with something better. That's nonsense. That, that makes a lot of sense. It also reminds us, we did a podcast on Mises, his book, Critique of Interventionism. Uh, and we actually applied it to Mike Munger's example of price controls and Hurricane uh, Fran and Raleigh around ice. I don't know if you've ever heard that anecdote where, um, you, you know, they some folks from Eastern North Carolina had power, brought ice to Raleigh and people were buying it. But of course, they were charging, you know, like $100 for this bag of ice. Um, and the police come and confiscate all the ice and no one can get any ice. Yes, I remember, and it's still the law in North Carolina. It's, it's oh, like, wow. Governor Cooper's reiterated that that during COVID, it's uh, they're going to they're going to enforce those price price gouging laws. Interesting ways in which you can make people, I guess, worse off in trying to signal caring or something like that. Interesting. So, so John, you uh, you actually met Karl Popper, is that correct? Yes, it was. It was a great experience in, in most ways. It was a little, little upsetting as well because back at that point, that's when I was still practicing architecture. And um, I was in, in the UK on some architectural business and I, I managed to wangle an invitation to have tea with him at his home. I was thrilled. Um, but when I got there, he sort of surprised me by saying, well, now, uh, is there anything you'd like to ask me? And I thought, oh, here's my chance. <laughs> so I no tried pressure. very badly to explain how, what I thought his theory of knowledge implied as far as, as far as buildings and architecture were concerned. I, I remember it vividly because he happened, there happened to be a book of about ancient Greek buildings, you know, a picture book with, with lots of nice photographs of temples and so on. And, and I opened one to a temple with a Doric portico. And I tried to explain my theory using that. I said, look, the architects who designed that couldn't have done it by the, by the, form follows function, which that was the motto of modern architecture. We're gonna use the, the functional requirements to generate the form um, and do it from scratch every time. That couldn't have worked. They couldn't have come up with these columns that worked so well functionally. They held out the stone portico above and they looked beautiful and they lasted for millennia. They couldn't right. have done that using the form follows function or the uh, uh, 
start from scratch method. Instead, I'm sure, and I, I believe this has been documented, they, they had rules. And they said that, you know, a door column uh, at this period of time anyway, ought to be six lower diameters in height. It used to be, you know, the, the ratio ought to be one to six. And then the capital ought to be one half of a lower diameter in height and so on, right down to the smallest details. And those rules, by the time this, this was that sort of, I think a, a building from the height of uh, uh, elegance in, in uh, uh, during the period, during Athens days of glory. And, and it was perfect. But if you look at older Doric temples, they're not, they're much more clumsy. And it took them a long time to refine it and get to the perfection of design that they finally achieved. And I feel, I felt, I tried to make the case that they did this through the trial and error method that was very similar to what Popper calls critical rationalism that applies in the sciences. It's that cycle I talked about where you start with a problem, you formulate a hypothetical solution, you criticize and test it, and out of that usually comes a new problem. Same kind of process only with architectural proportions in this case or other rules for, for designing and building buildings. He just didn't buy it at all, <laughs> not at all. And uh, oh, no. it was very, it was kind of upsetting, but mostly, <laughs> you know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't uh, very articulate at the best of times as a young man and especially not when I was in the presence of right. a great hero. So I, I just let it go. Right. <laughs> That's a that's a great story. Uh, so so John, we talked a little bit about this already, but so what are some of the political implications of this theory, Popper's theory of knowledge? Well, and again, this is another place where Popper would would I, I didn't talk to him about it, but he would undoubtedly have disagreed. Um, it's it's Popper's theory of knowledge that turned me into a libertarian, and I'll, I'll try to explain why in a minute. But just before I do, I need to predicate everything I say by pointing out that Popper himself was no libertarian. He started life as a, as a young communist and, and he was always sympathetic to socialism throughout his life. And even though he ended up being um, through Hayek's influence primarily, a part of the original remnant of people who believed in classical liberalism and, and helped preserve it through the dark days of the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and uh, anyway, <laughs> on, and on. on and on but but he so he, he ended up as a classical liberal but he still believed in quite a lot of government intervention he still believed in a social safety net so did Hayek for that matter but but so Popper wouldn't go along with what I'm going to say but nevertheless I never understood why not it seems to me the implication of what he says is clear and it works like this if if the only way knowledge can improve and grow through a process of trial and error, it's better to have lots of little experiments than one big experiment. Under socialism or any kind of uh, totalitarian system of state control, we're all in it together. We're gonna to have one person or one body deciding how, what, what system we're gonna to test today. And they impose it on everybody. If it works, great. If it fails, too bad. But everybody's goes down together and we can't gather very much information about what works that way because we can't run very many trials. And if gotcha. it's a system of trial and error, you want lots of trials, lots of error. Um, so my thinking is we need to devolve decision-making as far as possible. And that means most of the time down to the level of the individual or the level of, of groups who agree to work together as a group. Um, but the way that can, that can only work 
the system, this, this trial and error process I've been talking about could only work if everybody has to take responsibility for their own actions. Otherwise, you don't get the kind of feedback that's necessary for this system to work. Um, and so that's how we end up with something like a libertarian or a classical liberal political system because under that system, we're free to each, we're each free to try what we want, try our experiments, but we have to take responsibility for our failures. We can't just uh, allow other people to bear the costs if we screw up. Because apart from anything else, uh, we won't be motivated to, to go back and try something new if we don't have to bear the cost. That so that's libertarian in a, uh, libertarianism or classical liberalism in a nutshell, as far as I'm concerned. Most of the time, we want to let individuals and groups do what they think is best for them, um, as long as they're willing to take responsibility for it, or if they're not willing, as long as we we're in a position to make them do so. And part of why I think this is so important, and it's sort of a moral imperative, is because of something I touched on briefly, which is fallibilism, Popper's logical proof of why we can't never know anything for certain. It's just not an option. Fallibilism across the board is an inescapable part of the human condition. And that means that and Popper's motto was, I may be wrong and you may be right. And by an effort, we may be able to get closer to the truth. That's the attitude we need to have. So gotcha. if we accept fallibilism as we should, then we, we must acknowledge that no matter how sure I am that I know the right way to do something, I still could be wrong. The other fellow who thinks that it's better to do it a different way, he may be right, even though I'm sure he's wrong. He still may be right. That's just a fact. So why not let him try as long as he is willing to bear the entire risk himself? That's the best way to learn. And, and the more mistakes we make, the faster we learn, as long as, as I say, we take responsibility and we, and we bear the brunt of our failures ourselves. That makes a lot of sense. It, it does seem really important that people internalize cost generally. Like it seems like things get out of whack when you can externalize your cost. So if you can, you know, you think about pollution or things like, you know, public goods problems. I don't know. Absolutely. And it, and it isn't just, I mean, it's a practical issue because this kind of trial and error system can't work without that feedback. But it, to me, for me anyway, it's also a moral issue because I just think it's immoral to impose the cost of your mistakes on other people, you should bear them yourself. That makes sense. And that, that seems like a common sense moral intuition too. I think most people would agree with that. Well, you say that, but would hope. <laughs> I mean, I've been making this case as long as I can remember. Uh, <laughs> and in the circles I move in anyway, hardly anybody ever agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating and horrifying, but uh, interesting. Um, so this leads to my next question. In general, do you think... Um, Governance has gotten better or worse over time, you know, in the United States and in North Carolina. Uh, it's super multifaceted and broad, but. Well, it's a mixed bag. Um, I have a. a it's by nature, I'm kind of a, of a cynical, pessimistic <laughs> sort of guy. So I, I, I think my my intuitions about these things are, are, are not usually accurate. And I try to temper that by reading The Optimist, people like Matt Ridley, whom we've, we've talked about in the past. Right. Um, people like Steven Pinker, you know, he's written a number of books over in recent years that show 
the, ex the astonishing extent to which things have improved almost steadily for, for, for at least several centuries. And uh, Julian Simon's another one. Are you familiar with Julian Simon? He, he's passed away no. now, but he was an economist. He wrote The Ultimate Resource. Oh, is that uh, Simon Ehrlich bet? That yes, that's okay. the Simon. Gotcha. He was the one who, because he's he has always taken this position that things get better because of yeah. human ingenuity, and uh, he he and and uh, Ehrlich was the pessimist in all this, and he thought things were just going to hell in a handbasket, and that's why they had that famous bet over whether we're going to run out of certain resources. Uh, the the idea was that if we if we are if we do start to run out, the price of of these commodities is going to go up. So they picked a mixed bag. I don't know how they came up with it, but both sides agreed it was fair. And how long did that best that that last? Ten years or something? Something like that. I can't. A significant quite period of time. And uh, Simon bet that at the end of the period, the uh, that particular package would cost less to buy than at the beginning. And Simon was 100% sure it was going to cost a whole lot more because we were running out of everything in a hurry. Simon won, and he didn't win by a little bit. He was a clear victor. So. I, I think rationally, I believe that things are getting better. And, and even though it's very hard to see how it can be true, it probably is even true that we're being better governed than we used to be. Interesting. Uh, it doesn't look like it lately, but I think it probably is the case. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so I, before I, we, we move on too much, uh, Dad, do you have any questions about uh, Karl Popper? Anything else we need to cover there? Not about Popper as much as um, just this, uh, the subject of being optimistic today because, you know, I'm, I'm a reader of Hans Rosling, Factfulness, and, and the way he said, again, one of the guys that, that can just illustrate how much better the world is getting. Um, and, and so, of course, I'm the optimist. And I keep wondering, I really think what I am is much closer to being a realist than an optimist. And, and, but, and, but the really bright people that I know, including my children, are pessimists. And so that, that subject alone, I would love people to talk about that so I can try to better. Well, Will, is Will a pessimist? Yes. I, I, I am fairly pessimistic. I look at mainly, so in some levels I'm, I'm optimistic, you know, like global poverty has gone down. Like you look at these charts, like things like look good. But then you look at like, well, like America's ability to do things seems greatly compromised. Like if we did the Manhattan, Pro Manhattan Project today, I, I don't think we could do it. You know, it I'm doesn't not bear quite thinking sure. about, though. It would be, it would be a colossal <laughs> cock up for sure. Right. I mean, like, you know, uh, Einstein's letter would get lost in the mail room in the White House. You know, I, I don't know. It just. It, but that said, though, Will, you, can't, you have to you have to admit there was an exception when it came to this, these COVID vaccines. They That's did true. that in it awfully quickly, and the government I, it, played a role yeah. there, right? Operation Warp Speed. Th this is a great point. Uh, it seems it. I, I would say it's a special case where they they took the the guys like Army Corps of Engineers. They gave them twenty six billion dollars, and they said, "You go fix it, and we're going to fire you if you don't fix it as quickly as possible." And that seems to be very different from the way much of our federal bureaucracy works if that yeah. makes sense but no yeah, it, that is a good point we we did we have actually done i think surprisingly well on that. but you know in support of your view of this i mean it's hard to see up until then i think it's it's fair to say that the the world's so-called experts at every level from from the world health organization 
down to the Department of Health and Human Services in North Carolina, they screwed up over and over again. They completely screwed it up from start to finish. And it's an indictment of government and it's an indictment of expertise and it's an indictment of, of big science, frankly. So I can easily see why you might be pessimistic, but I think that, that your father is right and, 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 uh, and, and Matt Ridley's right and all the other I've mentioned are right. If you are rational and you look at the evidence, the trends have been good and, and they've been good right up until 2020. The first decades of the, of the 21st century have been fabulous for the world, almost every way you might, you might try to measure it. So we pessimists, nature's pessimists like us, we have to, we have to try to keep our perspective. That's right. That's right. And I also think, I wonder, you know, dad, you mentioned your children, pessimistic. I, I wonder if the pessimism comes from perhaps from millennials, Gen Z, uh, reduced expectations, perhaps expectations are lower for the future. And that plays into it. It's like a hedonic treadmill, right? So things are getting better, but they're like getting better more slowly than they were or something like that. Well, um, I can tell you what your grandmother and grandfather would say. If you feel that way, go out and fix it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't expect somebody else to do it. Put your boots on, put your big boy pants on right. and go fix it. And that's exactly what I think happened with the vaccine is like, it sort of felt, initially it popper would have been perfect for this. It's like, we tried this and we tried that and it's fail, fail, fail. And we can't agree. And we can't get along and everybody's failing. And, and we, and we finally agree we'll have a vaccine. And then they pour a bunch of effort into it. And good people just slay themselves formulating answers and thinking about it and working hard. And boom, you have a vaccine in nine months where never in history has that happened before. And compared to, for instance, the epidemic of World War I, where how many millions and millions of people died, a small fraction will die this time. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's right. And, and, and it does does also, as I, I guess maybe it's too obvious to even mention, but I'm going to mention it anyway. I think everything we've talked about in connection with both the vaccine and the other and the other policies that governments have rolled out since the uh, since COVID hit, it illustrates why Popper's ideas, as they apply in the political realm, that is to say, through a classical liberal or libertarian um, form of political economy, really work much better than top. Down, um, starting from scratch, um, this, the alternative approach, which is still the one that most people, especially most educated people and most intellectuals, seem to find most congenial. We ought to put the right people in charge and let them do it from first principles. That just doesn't work. And, and the vaccine kind of proved that. I mean, they, they've been working on, including the mRNA vaccine, they've been working on it and working, working for a while. But until they really, we, you know, sort of got under the gun and they poured a lot of resources into it, suddenly they, they, the problems they were having, they managed to solve them. They've been able to bring the vaccine to us fast. And I think that was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I've always been assuming that part of what made this, this work was that they eliminated a lot of the regulatory barriers and let things happen more quickly than they would have if the bureaucracy had been in charge. And gave them a lot of assets to do it. That's the other part is you need a lot of assets. You've got to be able to pour funding into it to buy the things that you need and, 
and, and make vaccines in advance that we'll probably throw away. But who cares if we get enough, then it'll be well worth it. Yeah. Well, it wasn't even that much money. It was like, you know, one or two aircraft carriers. You know, it, it's just a, a pittance compared to the money they spent on COVID relief at the right. federal level. It's just obscene. That's right. So, so John, you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, why do you think smart people have that conceit, if that makes sense? That you know, we can we can top down control a lot of these problems and just put smart person in there, first principles, and they're good to go. Well, I wish I knew the answer to that. If I did, maybe I would be better able to talk them out of it. <laughs> what do you think? I I'm not sure. I, I think people want to believe they have agency, perhaps. Maybe that's that's it. I, I don't know. People like them are important. Maybe that plays into it. You know, power is enticing. I don't know. It's tough to say. Really tough to say. I guess maybe, I mean, I haven't really thought about this before, but now that you've brought it up, I'm going to think about it some more in the future. But just thinking out loud, the more intelligent and knowledgeable you are, I suppose, inevitably, the more likely you are to think I should be able to figure this out and people like me should be able to figure this out. Maybe that's so. it. I don't know. Yeah, th th I think that's a good assessment. Um, so so moving on from there, John, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, so civil asset forfeiture. What is it and, and why should we care about it? I know that's kind of like a right turn, but I think it's well, an important thing. Uh, let me just explain why we get there so quickly. So what I'm doing these days, I don't, I'm not practicing law anymore. I'm doing uh, legal analysis at a think tank in Raleigh. And one of the projects I've been working on is reforming North Carolina's civil asset forfeiture regime, or, or I should say it more accurately, our asset forfeiture regime. Asset forfeiture is, um, just refers to when somebody commits a crime and it makes sense. You don't want them to profit from that crime. So right. you want to take away the proceeds of the crime. Why should they get to keep them? Ideally, you would restore to the person that they took it from. Uh, that's not what actually happens under most asset, most asset forfeiture regimes, including ours in North Carolina. The state usually keeps it. Oh, but wow. Better the state even than letting the criminal keep it. Right. So there's, some, there's, some, there's a moral basis for asset forfeiture. Um, in North Carolina, our, our asset forfeiture laws, for the most part, there are a few minor exceptions in the area of uh, traffic crimes, but leaving those aside, for the most part, North Carolina, you, you're asked, you're, uh, a criminal, assets belonging to a criminal are only subject to forfeiture if that criminal has been charged and found guilty. Then oh, you can okay. take his assets. That's criminal forfeiture. Um, back in the 80s, the federal government, you know, they, had, they were ramping up the war on drugs. And uh, it's a tough war to fight for all kinds of reasons. In fact, it's a, it's a hopeless war to fight in my opinion, but that's a different topic. But one of the things that they had to deal with was the fact that the big people, the people who are making all the money and calling the shots often aren't even in this country. So, I think probably they sincerely felt is the best way to hurt them is to take away um, their, their assets. Take away all the assets, all their assets that we can in this country. Now, if we can't even find them, we can't even get to them because we're out of the country. We, we can't actually arrest them, charge them with a crime and convict them. So they revived this 
really ancient doctrine of civil forfeiture, which had was completely moribund in this country for well over a century. Um, and the idea is that you, you it, it sounds crazy to modern ears, but what you do is you charge the property. So you get cases like United States versus uh, a, a 2011 Coupe de Ville or the United oh, States really? versus $8,433 in cash. And they, they, and it's not a criminal, it's not a criminal proceeding, it's a civil proceeding. That's why it's called civil asset forfeiture. They charge the object or the cash with uh, being connected with a crime. And then because it's in civil court rather than in criminal court, they don't have to prove that it was connected with the crime by beyond a reasonable doubt. All they have to do is show it's slightly more probable that it was and it wasn't. And in fact, they even go further and they, they shift the burden of proof onto the owner. Oh, wow. So they take the property first. And then if you want to get it back, you have to go into court and prove that it wasn't connected with the crime. Oh, and wow. oftentimes it just isn't even worth it. If it's like a couple thousand dollars, it's going to cost you more to uh, hire a lawyer and try to get your property back than, than it's worth. It's, it's, to me, it's just a complete abuse of due process and uh, it shouldn't be happening in this country at all. And, and under North Carolina's laws, it really wouldn't for all intents and purposes. The problem is though, more recently, the feds expanded the program. I mean, it's huge at the federal level already. Billions yeah. of dollars they take out off Good of Lord. people through civil asset forfeiture, but they've also got something called equitable sharing um, by means of which state and local law enforcement agencies can participate in the federal program so that- Oh God. If you're part of a of of a um, of a of a joint investigation with the feds, you get a share based on how many hours uh, members of your department put in. That's not so bad. I mean, it's bad because we don't like civil asset forfeiture, but at least the incentives aren't terrible. But what's worse is they give they said there's a there's another thing called um, uh, adoptions where you can instead of if you suspect that, let's say, somebody's selling marijuana out of a house in Durham, yeah, there's no way you can get your as a as a as a police department. There's no way you can get your hands on that house under North Carolina law for two reasons. First, you have to charge the owner, prove that they were involved in the criminal proceedings, um, and even if you do, under our constitution, all all um, proceeds of any kind of a criminal or any kind of all, all assets seized have to go to public education. So there's no incentive for the force <laughs> oh, wow. to get their hands on it. That's not how it is under federal law. Under federal law, not only is the police force that takes it allowed to get it, they're required to get it under oh, federal God. law. So what, what the feds have may arrange, so you can, the, 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 a local law enforcement agency can, can uh, process that house under federal drug laws. Um, it'll get forfeited. It'll get sold and they get 90% of the proceeds back as their share. The feds keep a 10% handling charge, oh, so to man. speak, or a money laundry fee. And as a result, in North Carolina, law enforcement agencies are collecting millions of dollars every year, um, hundreds of millions of dollars, in fact, through uh, civil asset forfeiture when that's not even allowed under state law. So that's one of the things we're trying to get some reform of. Jeez, that's... Uh... That's really bad. And that seems to play into the, you know, we've heard a lot about, you know, defunding the police and, you know, everyone's talking about policing in the United States recently. And this does seem to play with it, 
play into it, right? You know, someone can, if the police can come in, take your stuff, and you can't really, you know, you can't get it back, and it just sets the tone, I assume, it's uh, in terrible. communities. It, it corrupts the police, frankly, because it, 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 it's a perverse incentive. Their incentive is no longer to fight crime. It's to get rich. Right. And, and, and also, it perverts the relationship between the police and the public because it turns the police into predators and it turns right. the public into their prey. And that just poisons things, absolutely poisons things. So I think that um, although it's not as bad in North Carolina as it's been in many states, because as I say, unlike most states, our laws, our state laws are pretty good in this area. Nevertheless, it, it, it's, it's bad for police, for the re for relations between the police and the public. And in some parts of the country, it's been absolutely a disaster. It's not the only reason there's problems, but that's a big one. That's really interesting. So um, you guys have been, and you have been working on efforts to try to and, and stop civil asset forfeiture. How's that been going? Is it slow going? Yeah, we, we, we haven't made any, we haven't made much progress in North Carolina, to be honest. Um, mostly, I think, because it's, it's not as acute a problem here as it is in other states. People, gotcha. it's hard to get people's attention about it. I mean, the money is significant and, and, it, and the damage it does to um, the relationship between the police and the public is, is also serious. But compared to many states, it's not that big a deal. Um, a lot of states, I would say, uh, I don't have uh, the numbers right in front of me, but, it, but at least a dozen or more have actually put a stop to equitable sharing, this program that lets local police use federal laws to take property. But most and possibly every time that's happened, it's when they've also been reforming their own state civil asset forfeiture laws. And because we're so much better than most states in this area, it's, it's really hard to get people's attention. But we you know these things always take a long time. And if I may, I'd like to say this topic of police reform, though, because I think it's an interesting topic. You know, not many people in this country know it, but on a per capita basis, we have fewer police per capita and we spend less as a percentage of our gross national product on the police than most European countries. Most countries have more police and in particular, more beat, police on the beat, more people walking the streets or driving around in squad cars than we do. And I think that's a significant part of the reason why they have less crime than we do. It's not the only reason, of course, but it's a part of the reason and why they have less incarceration than we do. We have, we spend so much more on incarceration than any other country, but we spend less on policing. That's not smart. We do much better to spend our dollars on having more police on the street. We'd have fewer crimes, less incarceration, and the most important of all, we have fewer crime victims. Nobody thinks much these days about the victims of crime, but they matter. When a neighborhood has a lot of crime, businesses leave, new businesses don't come in, young people can't find jobs. They, because they can't find jobs, they don't get married. Kids are born out of wedlock and young people turn to crime. It's terrible. And Vicious we could, cycle. I think, make a stent in that if we had more police on the street. That, that's, that's really interesting. It does seem like one of America's big problems is we are simultaneously under-policed and over-policed. So, you know, we've got like, you know, police militarization they've you know got excess equipment from iraq and afghanistan and then like you said they're underfunded and they're not you know on the beat they're not out in the community because there's not enough of them and they don't have enough resources to do that um and then they're perhaps they're underpaid so you perhaps you get lower quality 
and then, and these problems perpetuate themselves. I don't know. Oh, I think that's right. That's the other reason we need to spend more because if we could pay police better, we get more professional police and that would be good. Right. I, I also wonder if it's something like, I, I see this in teaching unions too. So, you know, teachers as a profession are uh, overwhelmingly uh, progressive in this country and police are overwhelmingly uh conservative in this country if you just look at like the breakdown like politically and I often wonder when you get to these extremes where it's 95 percent one way and five percent the other way uh you get weird things start to happen right so uh you know with teachers unions we see all, all kinds of wacky things happening where it seems like they don't even you know care about the kids anymore and then with police unions you see the same thing happen in the sure. other direction if that makes sense it's another topic for another day probably but i think uh what you talked about is exactly right. This is a terrible problem with both police and the teachers. And the solution is simple. And fortunately in North Carolina, we've done it. There should not be public uh, employee unions. That should be off the table because um, it's a conspiracy against the public interest. Interesting. John, do you have any, any broad strokes about what you might like to see about police reform? Because a lot of what I see is we ask the police to do too many functions. I think probably. that's probably true. Um, it's certainly true when it comes to things like mental illness. A, a, a large number of, of people who end up in police custody are mentally ill. And there's an argument to be made that the police aren't the people who should be dealing with. In fact, I think that's almost certainly true. Given though the fact that we have deinstitutionalized mental illness in this country, it's not clear to me. I'm, I, I'm willing to be persuaded, but it's not clear to me that you can simply send the social worker instead. In North Carolina and all over the country, we've just had this proliferation of criminal um, uh, criminal laws. I mean, in, it, we have thousands upon thousands of crimes in North Carolina. It's ridiculous, and 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 it's growing every year. And it's not just all the hundreds of crimes that get created every year by the General Assembly and end up in the statute book, although even there, there's far too many, and they're spread all through the statute book. Only a, only a fraction, of them, a fraction of, them, of them are in uh, the chapter that's called criminal law. They're all over the shop. Um, but on top of that, we've got, uh, we've got regulatory agencies creating crimes under enabling statutes. And we've got even worse, in my opinion, We've got um, licensing boards, you know, the Board of Dental Examiners, they can make it, they have made it a crime to whiten teeth without a license. I mean, that should not be a crime. That's just preposterous. And something similar also happens with our um, counties and municipalities. Again, there's enabling statutes that allow city councils and um, county governments to create crimes, noise ordinances, all kinds of things. And the police have to enforce them, or they do enforce them. People end up with criminal convictions for things like begging, things like uh, public urination, things like sleeping in a park. Now, but again, it's not, the, the alternative isn't obvious. And I think a lot of people, I, I know a lot of people in the criminal justice reform movement, and they're very fine people. And I think they're, they're working on real problems and that need to be solved, but it's not obvious what the solution is. It does seem like we have way too many, like you said, just criminal laws. And it seems like that can quickly turn into something where you can find people guilty of something if you want to. Is, is that a fair thing to say? 
It's absolutely a fair thing to say. I don't know if it's true, but somebody wrote a book about it. They say that each of us on average commits three federal crimes a day. <laughs> I mean, and, and nobody knows. Actually, I don't think the author of that could possibly know either because there are so many federal crimes now. I mean, North Carolina seems bad, but it's an order of magnitude worse at the federal level. At the federal level, it's not even the federal government's job to be enforcing making and enforcing criminal laws, except in rare instances, this should be something that's at, done at the state level. But the federal government has tens of thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of criminal of, of crimes and, and, and criminalized regulations. Nobody knows, nobody has any idea how many there are. That's that's really interesting. I, I want to turn to this, and this is a great transition point. Uh, eugenics in North Carolina. I don't think many people know about this, but this is a this is pretty wild because it was it was in practice up until the 70s, is that correct? That's true. It's a very sad chapter in North Carolina's history. Um, we, I've written about this too because uh, finally, just recently, the General Assembly finally uh, agreed to, to allocate some money to compensate the few surviving victims of North Carolina's eugenics program. And it got... They, they passed the law. It wasn't going to be a lot of money per person because it was a fixed amount that had to get divided amongst all the people who qualified. Oh, geez. But then because there were debates about exactly the meaning of the law and who it applied to, it got tied up in litigation for a number of years. And so <laughs> nobody was getting compensated. And all, all the while, the number of surviving victims was dwindling. People would die. And then, of course, that raised the question of, well, what about their estates? The litigation was a mess. Um, people are starting to get compensated now, which is good. It's not enough, frankly. Um, and it isn't going to help the people who didn't live to get any compensation. But there's more to be said about this because eugenics, you know, most people now, they react with horror to the idea. Right. Uh, forced sterilization of somebody just because you think, you know, because they're, at, because they're epileptic, because they have a low IQ, because it used to be very commonly because they ha have immoral tendencies. Um, oh, you know, uh, a, a promiscuous woman, for example, could be sterilized. And we think it's horrible now. But this is an example of something we started talking about at the very beginning. For many, many years, all the way up to the 70s in North Carolina, progressive opinion. And when I say progressive, I mean progressive. The progressive party, the people who call themselves progressives, at the turn of the 20th century and all the way up at least until the 30s were absolutely convinced that this was the right thing to do. It wasn't just okay or acceptable or a unpleasant necessity. This was a moral crusade. They had three big things that progressives wanted to do. Votes for women, good. Prohibition, not so good. Yeah. Eugenics, terrible. Wow. And, and, and so when you know, young people now, they're so convinced they know what's right. They think they know how this is all gonna work and what's right and what's wrong. They should step back and remember that their grandparents or in those, I guess for young people now, their great, great grandparents were just as convinced that they knew what was right and they were willing to use force to, to make it happen. But one of the things those people wanted to have happen was that undesirables could be forcibly <laughs> sterilized so that they wouldn't pollute as they said, race purity. They wanted to preserve and improve the race. Um, I don't think they necessarily had race in mind the way we think of it, but nevertheless, that's the way they talked. Um, so we should be humble and, and 
not so quick to assume we know what's best for everybody to the extent to which we would impose it on them by force. John, was, was this also true in most states, the United States, other yes. than- it was true. I don't know if it was true in every state, but it was just, it was definitely true in most states. Now, North Carolina um, kept going a lot longer than most states. Um, I don't know if any states carried on any longer than we did. I mean, to, to think that this was still going on in the 1970s is pretty shocking. But um, but up until the Second World War, it was it was pretty much. I, don't, I wouldn't go so far as, I don't know for a fact that every state had a eugenics program, but certainly most of them did. Good Lord. Yeah, it, it does It does bring up, John, like you said, it makes you wonder what things today do we think is, is morally acceptable and things we definitely should do that are actually just as bad as what these, you know, people in the 20s, 50s, 60s, and turns out in the 70s, North Carolina thought were, thought was okay to do. It's a, uh, it's a reminder to be humble. Progressive heroes, people like John Maynard Keynes or Woodrow Wilson or Teddy Roosevelt, uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, lots of people that, that, that young people now probably think of as progressive icons. They were all gung-ho eugenicists. Uh, yes, uh, it, it's, it's quite surprising. I know Keynes was like the head of the eugenics society. It's, uh, it's amazing how commonplace ideas like that were and, um, how accepted they were as well. Will, you want to give uh, John a crack at the, how important the North Carolina Supreme Court is before we run out of time here? Yeah, perhaps uh, this is just a throwaway. Um, uh, John, how important is the Supreme Court in North Carolina? I, I don't know how, you know, how is it set up? I, I know there's some interesting things like the governor has less power than the legislature, but, you know, things I missed in my middle school North Carolina history yeah. class. Well, people always say that about the governor of North Carolina. The governor of North Carolina has gotten a lot more powerful in recent years. I mean, we were famous for having a weak governor, and that's not as true as it used to be. But leaving that aside, what's happened in North Carolina at the Supreme Court is the same thing that's happened in every state. And it started, the rot started at the federal level, which is through because of the progressives, progressive legal doctrine held that because they didn't really like the Constitution, that's another thing about someday. They hated the Constitution in the election of uh, 1912, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson ran. They competed for being more anti-Constitution than the really? other. They both ran anti-Constitution campaigns. But leaving that aside, so their solution, because it's so hard to, well, I mean, they, they knew they couldn't have a new, con get rid of the Constitution. So what they decided to do was give the courts the ability to simply change it without going through the amendment process. It's a living document. The meaning of its clauses has to change with the times. That's the idea. But once you do that, once you do that, you make the uh, highest appeal court into a, a super legislature. They can gotcha. change the laws. They can strike down the laws. They could create new rights or new, even new laws from um, if they want to. And that's a problem. And it's, it, it started at the federal level in the 30s. But uh, after the Second World War in the 40s and 50s, North Carolina courts adopted the doctrine too. So it's a problem in North Carolina. Um, it's one that we have to worry about. There's always a temptation when you're a judge at any level, but especially at the Supreme Court level, to let your policy preferences govern instead of the letter of the law. Right. Um, what's interesting about this last election is, I don't know if you 
you're probably aware of this, that the Republicans swept all five open seats on the Court of Appeals, which is the next level down. And it looks like, although it's, there's still a contest going on, but it looks like they're going to sweep all three seats on the Supreme Court as well. Prior to that, our court was, had six Democrats and one Republican. Wow. Kind of a long story how it ended up that way, but, but that's not good because, as I say, there's, there's always a temptation to let your policy preferences guide you if you're a judge at any level. And I, I honestly think this temptation is much greater if you're a Democrat because the Democrats are part of this progressive tradition. They're the remnant of this progressive tradition that has always been in favor of living document, uh, the living document approach to interpretation. So it's easier. It's just easier in your own mind to change the law if that's what you think needs to happen. Um, so I think this shift is good. We've got a much more balanced, we're gonna have a much more balanced court going forward ideologically balanced, politically balanced. Um, so that makes that kind of legislating from the bench less likely. And I think it's also going to make that kind of legislation from the bench less likely because the Democrats who weren't up for re-election this time, they saw what happened. I think they're going to realize that compared to uh, elections gone by, the public was very interested in the judicial elections this time around. And they didn't like what they'd seen from the Democrats. They wanted um, more rigor, more textualism, more originalism. They wanted judges that simply applied the laws that was written and didn't legislate from the bench. I had one more question leading off of this. Uh, so, you know, people talk a lot about, and it does seem to be that North Carolina is heavily gerrymandered. You know, Democrats have done this before too, you know, in Maryland, and we can come up with other cases as well. Uh, so it seems like whoever's in charge, they're going to try to draw the lines in their favor. Yeah. Uh, what do we, is there anything we can do about that reasonably? Well, sure, we could do something about it. There's probably not a perfect ultimate solution, but some states, Iowa for one, they have a, they have a nonpartisan commission do their redistricting. Uh, where I work at the John Locke Foundation, that's what we have always advocated. Um, as long as I can remember, long before I started working there, they've been proponents of a, of a nonpartisan commission to do the redistricting and not allow the parties to do it for themselves. Um, the problem is whoever's whoever's got the majority of the state <laughs> legislatures, they don't want to make that change because right. it doesn't occur to them or somehow they can't think far enough ahead to realize that they're not always going to be in charge. If they allow the uh, legislature to gerrymander, then someday the other side's going to get to do the same thing. But uh, so the answer is yes, we could get there, but whether we will, I don't know. Gotcha. So, and, and you do think like a, a nonpartisan commission is actually possible, I guess. Well, you know, part of why it works in Iowa is because Iowa is populated by Iowans. I, I have a lot of elections <laughs> out there, and th those people are the salt of the earth. Uh, another right. reason why it's is that I don't feel familiar with Iowa. It's kind of a square state. Right. Just counties. It's like a grid. Right. And so they don't have all these rivers and mountains. And right. You know, there's, there's less incentive or less opportunity to, to mess things around. Um, and, 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 and as I say, because there's such good public-spirited, honest, decent people, they tend not to- They tend to do the right thing. Corrupted. Right. Uh, other, states, other states that have tried uh, supposedly nonpartisan commissions haven't done so well. And often what, what, when we say nonpartisan, what it usually means is an equal number of Republicans and Democrats. Okay, gotcha. Um, <laughs> ideally, you get a different kind of commission. And I, I, I don't know whether that's possible in North Carolina. Uh, I haven't studied it all that much, to be honest, but I do like, 
I, I've written about this a little bit and there was a judge whose name escapes me, but he, he said something that I, I think is sums it up. He said, the people should choose their legislators. The legislators shouldn't get to choose the voters. Really well put, really well put. <laughs> well, um, well, well, thank you, John. Where can people find you, your work? Where, where should they check out your work? Any, if they go like to the John Locke Foundation's website, um, you, you'll find me there somewhere. Cool. Uh, I'm not sure web addresses, not the kind of thing I'm good at, but I suppose it's. And we can, uh, we can add a link. We can add a link. I, I don't know how to, how to explain it, how to, how to state the website address. I'm not, I'm kind of technically challenged, I'm afraid. That's all right. And, and where should people go to read about Karl Popper? Well, that's a good that's resources a question. Part of why Popper hasn't gotten his due is there's not a good uh, one-stop shop for it. Um, I'll tell you, one of the people in my group that I, I, I talk to every few weeks, uh, I call them the paparazzi. They don't like that very much. But um, <laughs> one of them has a, a website. Uh, his name um, is, is Rafe Champion. He's an Australian. And his website, I think, is called The Rat House. Um, I'll, if, it, if it would be helpful, I can send you the, the web address for that. And he's got a lot of good material there. And then, uh, you know, if people are interested and you, you're in a position to do it, you can also give them the web address of that website we talked about earlier, that new one that started uh, posting people's accounts of how I, or how, what Popper meant to me. You, you'll get some good feel for things there too, I think. Great, I'll make sure to include those links. Well, thanks, John. We'll have to have you on again. This was uh, really informative. I learned a lot. Well, I enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for the time, John. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 